good morning, church. How are you? Everybody doing good? Students? Any students in the room? One of them. That's great. Well, I'm excited for you, this one person going to student camp today. It's going to be a great day. Hey, turn in your Bible uh, with me, if you would please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. While you're turning there, I've got to tell you, church, I am burdened deeply about our, the future generations that, that we're raising up. I think about my own kids, some of the, the kids in our church, and there's just something on my heart that's just been weighing on me. It's been keeping me up at night, and I need to share it with you as we begin. Last week, when I, I took my kids on a road trip, it was an eight-hour road trip, and it occurred to me that our kids have it too good. Like, their life is too easy. Do you remember going on a road trip when you were a kid? We had to make up stuff to keep from dying of boredom. Somebody invented a game where you had to, like, look at road signs and find a road sign that started with every letter of the alphabet. Anybody else play that game? Yeah, because there was nothing else to do. It was excruciating. You'd always get stuck at X, and you'd start stretching, making up new rules to try to get past X, and that's how you survive. Uh, a long road trip. My kids last week watched Disney Plus for eight hours, didn't even realize we'd arrived. They're like, oh, cool, we're here. This is awesome. The lives that our kids lead are totally different in many ways than the lives that we lead. And that's true for every generation, right? The life I led is totally different than my parents and so on and so forth. Uh, And so I'd say that in jest, obviously that's a joke, uh, except for eight hours of Disney Plus is probably not good for their brains, but it's okay. But it's mostly a joke, not a burden. But there is a real sense in which our kids uh, will have a much more difficult life than you and I have had. Our kids, my kids specifically, will have a harder time living out their faith than I did as a teenager or as as an elementary or middle school student. It will be harder for our kids to live out their faith than it was for us. We live in a culture, in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to the faith that we profess. My kids are going to grow up in a world where it's totally normal for someone to choose their own gender. They're going to have, uh, the, the, the people around them will have no concept of, of gender being a gift from God or, or, or some kind of uh, part of our identity. Uh, my, my two girls, they're going to have, uh, be surrounded by people who, uh, who insist that modesty is old-fashioned and who insist that, that real freedom and real liberation is wearing as little as possible in public. And we're going to have to fight a battle with our girls uh, to teach them a different way. And it's going to be harder because of the culture and the environment that they live in. The idea that sex should be safe for marriage or that being intoxicated by any and every substance isn't your best life, isn't what God has for us, that's going to be an uphill battle to fight. And it's going to get harder and harder and harder and harder for our people to live out their faith. It's going to become less and less normal. Things that used to be on the fringes of society are now mainstream. And guess what? Those who hold to God's design for life are going to be pushed to the fringes. And so uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You can watch the news. You can go out uh, to the grocery store and you can figure this stuff out on your own. But we live in a world where it's going to be more and more difficult to live out our faith. And we're in a, a series in First Peter called True Grace, and we're in chapter 4 today. And Peter, thankfully, addresses this. This is not a new concept at all. This is not this, this idea of culture being set against our faith. This is not new. And so Peter is speaking to a culture who has the exact same set of circumstances going on. And so our text today answers this question, what do we do? What do we do about this? What do we do uh, when we're increasingly uh, pushed to the fringes of our society and our culture? And so 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, let's read that together 
And then let's dive in. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer in human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, this is your word given to us so that we might know you and know how you're calling us to live. I pray that we would receive it. I pray that we would obey it. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified in everything that we say here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, on the front, let me just tell you, this is not a happy-go-lucky, like, rosy, feel-good text, right? We're talking about suffering this morning. We're talking about pain and difficulty that arises from living out our flesh. So we can just go ahead and settle in here. And I want to pull out three things that I think we see in this text. So we're just going to walk through it line by line, if that's okay with you. Notice here, uh, the, the first point I have to make is this, is that we must prepare to suffer for our faith. We must prepare to suffer for our faith. This first verse, it starts with therefore. So you always want to see what is a therefore, therefore. And it it takes us back to verse 18 of chapter 3. Pastor Matt covered last week, did a masterful job with it that says this. It says, for Christ suffered once for sins, the unrighteous for the righteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, the starting point for our whole conversation in verses 1 through 6, everything that we're going to say this morning, the starting point is the fact that Jesus suffered for us. He suffered for us. He paid the price for my sin and for yours. He did what was necessary to bring us to God when we had no business being in fellowship with God. And what this does is this disarms some of the objections we have to this passage, right? If you're anything like me, you don't like suffering, right? Anybody in here just love suffering? Oh my God, it's awesome. No, nobody loves that, right? And so when, when we read these biblical texts that tell us to prepare for suffering, that suffering is coming, we immediately put our guard up. We're like, no, I don't, I don't want to go through that. Why should I have to suffer for doing the, the right thing? I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Why do I have to deal with pain and difficulty? Well, when we put this all in the context of Jesus' suffering for us, it puts our guard down a little bit and reminds us that Jesus suffered. And it's a good thing that he didn't have the mindset that said, well, why do I have to do that for them? No, Jesus suffered on our behalf. And it's also important to note that this passage is talking specifically about suffering that results from living for Christ. This is not talking about the type of suffering that just happens to us, right? There's life circumstances that just happen. Uh, They're caused by sin. They're caused by just God's providence. They're caused by accidents, whatever you want to call it. But they just happen to us. We didn't do anything to, to bring them upon us. They just happen. This stuff happens all the time. I know of many people in our church right now that are going through suffering like this, that they didn't bring upon themselves. It's just happened. That's not what we're talking about here. The, the scripture has other places where it walks us through that and it tells us how to address that and deal with that. But this morning, we're talking specifically about suffering that's brought upon by choosing not to live like the world. And I think the operative first word or the operative word in this first verse is that word arm. 
He says to arm yourselves with the same thinking that Jesus had. It kind of evokes this image, right, what kind, uh, of someone preparing for battle, someone getting ready for a war. Any action movie any of us have ever seen has ever seen has the scene where the, the special ops team is getting ready for battle. You know what I'm talking about? And they're all the same. They're in some kind of vehicle being transported to the big mission. Uh, it's either like a big uh, transporter airplane or a boat. It's always dark for some reason. There's always one random red light for some reason in the room. Uh, and, and everybody's somber and quiet as they contemplate what's coming. They're thinking, oh man, here we go. And they start preparing their equipment, right? They might rack the slide on their weapon and they're, they're checking their pockets and their Velcro stuff to get ready. They, they might flip on their night vision goggles if it's a night raid or something like that. You know the scene I'm talking about, right? What are they doing? They're preparing themselves for the battle that they know is coming. And Peter says, hey, believers, Christians, I want you to arm yourselves. I want you to prepare yourself for what's coming because it is coming. He's trying to convey to us that the time is coming when we will be forced to take a stand for our faith. And it's better to be ready than it is to be caught off guard, right? I don't know if any of you guys have been in a fight. Any brawlers in here? A couple of you. But it's way better. That's Ronnie for sure, no doubt. Uh, Throw hands every once in a while. It's way better to take a punch to the mouth when you're ready for it and you know you're in a fight than it is to be sucker punched, isn't it? There's something different about it. It can be the same punch. But when you're ready for it and you know you're engaged in a battle, it goes a little bit better for you. This is what Peter's saying. Get ready. It's coming. So put up your dukes. Look what he says in the second half of this first verse. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now listen, this is a a verse that's caused people some problems uh, interpretive-wise over the years. And so before I tell you what it does mean, let me tell you what it does not mean, okay? It does not mean that suffering... Uh, guarantees us some kind of extra holiness or, or helps us become sinless or once we go through a, 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 a sense of suffering that we no longer struggle with sin. That's not what it means. What it, the New Testament's clear and pretty much everywhere else that so that's not how that works. Here's what this verse means. The person who experiences suffering for their faith has made a decision to make a break with a life of sin. They've made a decision that, hey, I'm getting off the fence. I'm going all in in my faith. I'm going all in in following the Lord. Many Christians that I know struggle to let go of their old selves. The Bible says that when we are, uh, become a believer, just like we demonstrated in that baptism, our old self dies and our new self is raised, right? Many Christians struggle to cut ties with their old selves, and they live this kind of on-the-fence life. One foot in the world, one foot in their faith. It's kind of like, ah, some days I'm, I'm all in with Jesus. Some days I'm kind of all in with my old self, my old habits and sins and struggles. And this text is saying, listen, once the persecution comes, you make a choice. There's no toying around with sin. There's no dabbling anymore. You move forward and you say, I'm all in with Jesus. It has a purifying effect on us. And I think, frankly, some of us, maybe if you're like me and have been raised in the Bible Belt, you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say you kind of live in both worlds or you kind of live on the fence in our faith. There's something about the, the, the South in general where, where Christianity is kind of baked into culture here. And I've met a ton of you. There's a ton of people in our church from the Northeast and from the California who know exactly what I'm talking about. They're like, yeah, you got to go all in or go all out. There's no middle ground. But some of us grew up in a world where Christianity was just part of the culture, Right? We talk about it in our country songs. We love Jesus cheating on our wives and getting drunk. And that's just, you know, it's just normal. 
right? And we don't even think about it. But I want to encourage you and I want to remind you that growing up in a Christian subculture doesn't make anyone a Christian. Your faith isn't handed down from your grandma. You don't pick it up by going to church a couple of times a year because that's what we do in the South. No, there has to be a decision to go all in with the Lord. And Peter is saying here, when the suffering comes, it forces you to make that decision. You're either going to capitulate to the, to the culture and just give in and be swept away, or you're going to stand firm in your faith. There's a choice that happens. My wife, when we were uh, dating, she accepted a job in Washington, D.C. She worked for a senator there, and so she moved from Florida, where we were living at the time, uh, to, to D.C. And, and took that job. And I remember calling her a few months in and saying, hey, how's it going? How's it going up there? How are things? And she said something that's always stuck with me. She said, uh, she said there are no lukewarm Christians here. There are no lukewarm Christians here. People are either uh, on fire for the Lord or they have no faith at all. There's something about the culture and the hostility to faith that she experienced there that made people pick a side. And I want to encourage you to pick a side. Don't live stuck between two worlds any longer. Don't wait for the persecution and the suffering come to make your decision. Let's make our decision now. We'll talk about that in a moment. Peter's telling us here that the suffering we experience, it's coming. And it pushes us out of a lukewarm faith into a place of wholehearted obedience to God. I want to encourage you to make that choice before the suffering comes. Number two, second thing I want to notice here, looking at verse three and verse four, is this, is that we must choose suffering over sin. We must choose suffering over sin. Look again at verses three and four. It says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. He says the time has passed for, for living that way, living uh, as slaves to your passions. And there's some words in that list of sins that are a little shocking, right? There's some stuff that may make us go, oh, man, that's outrageous. I don't, I don't do that stuff. He said orgies? Did he say that? I don't, I don't go to orgies. Maybe not. But I wonder how many men are stuck watching them on screens here week in and week out and are slaves to their passions. Maybe they don't attend in person, but they participate all the same. You may say, I'm not a drunkard. I'm not, I'm not caught up in my, my alcohol issues. You, know, you may not be lying passed out in a gutter, but there's a whole like culture around like Moms and wine, have you noticed this, right? Where the moms can't have, the big joke is moms can't have, can't function without a bottle of wine a day or a glass of wine at all times. And there's t-shirts about it and there's kitchen art that goes with it, right? And we're like, oh, that's just a joke. We're just having fun. But it always takes a kernel of truth for jokes to be funny, doesn't it? So I wonder how many of us, maybe when we read a passage like this, because that's not me. That's not me. I'm good. I've got things under control. I'm not living this dual life. I'm not one foot in and one foot out. And I want to encourage you. I just want to ask you this morning. Would you give the Holy Spirit permission to speak into your life and to reveal to you ways where your life does not match the life that God's called you to live? Would you give him space to do that? Would you be open to hearing what he might say to you of areas that don't line up that he's calling you to? You'd be surprised at what he might say. We like to think that we have things under control, that we're not that bad. But I want to encourage you to search your heart and let the Spirit search your heart to reveal to you where you really are. Peter's telling us here that the time for living like a Gentile 
is over. A Gentile just means someone who's not a believer. It's past. Since he's preparing us for the difficulty ahead, he's saying, hey, let's go ahead and be done with this stuff, with being slaves to our flesh. And here's what happens, it says, when we don't get swept away in the indulging of our desires. We're going to be maligned, which maligns a weird word that nobody uses in their day-to-day conversation. Uh, and so I like how the NIV translates this verse. It says, they are surprised, <coughs> excuse me, they are surprised that you do not join in their reckless, wild living. And it says, they heap abuse on you. They heap abuse on you. Let me tell you, people hate it when you don't indulge in sin with them. They hate it because they know their actions are wrong oftentimes and they want you to condone them. They hate it because it tells the world that we're living for something more and someone who is only living for this life can't tolerate the idea of someone living for more that you've found more and something bigger and better for living for. And so they're going to heap abuse on you when you don't go along with them. People will always undermine what they don't understand. And we've got to be ready for that. And we've got to be willing to choose that. We've got to be willing to declare to the people in our lives that our flesh and our bodies are not what's most important in this life. We've got to be willing to communicate that we were bought at a price and therefore we're not our own. And so we're going to glorify God in our bodies instead of glorifying ourselves in our bodies. This is why 1 Corinthians says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it says it's the power of God. Our distinct lives communicate that to them. And it creates the tension. It creates the frustration. And they will abuse us. And so we must choose suffering over sin. Why, first and foremost? Because God calls us to, right? He calls us to that. The the sin that we indulge in in our flesh is what sent Jesus to the cross. And so how dare we slap him in the face by continuing on in it, continuing to walk in it and live in it. No, being a follower of Jesus means repenting from that sin and turning to Jesus instead. But it's not just a because I said so thing, right? Don't you hate it when parents say, well, because I said so. Like, okay, well, that doesn't help at all. I'm trying to understand what's going on here. God's not just saying, don't do this because I said so. He's not some dictator father up in heaven. No, this is a better way, God will tell us, for life. It helps us live for things that matter. It keeps us from the pain and the heartache and the suffering and the destruction that comes from a life of sin. It makes our time on earth count. The Bible says to walk circumspectly, being careful and thoughtful in how we walk because the days we live in are evil. Focusing on God's design for life instead of our own flesh and passions is a better way to live. But the second reason we've got to choose suffering over sin is that our willingness to do so is a testimony to a watching world that Jesus really is alive, he really does change lives, and he has the power to save them as well. Friends, there's nothing powerful about someone who professes Christ but then looks like the world. There's nothing powerful about that. All that communicates to the people in our lives who are far from God is that we're just giving lip service to our faith that doesn't mean anything at all to us. We have to have a distinct Life Again, using my wife as an example, when she was in college is when she really started walking with the Lord. And, uh, and it caused her to make some decisions about uh, ending, uh, stopping some of the typical sins that college students deal with. And she really made a break from those things and, and went all in with her faith then. And it cost her relationships. She had some of her best friends walk away from her and turn their back on her. And it hurt. She was ostracized and left out of things and and kind of kicked out of stuff and wasn't part of the group anymore. But let me tell you what, 
Every one of those friends that she lost, not a single one doubted or doubts that her faith was genuine. Why? Because there was a change in her life. And this is what God calls you and I to, to live distinct from the world. We're on a mission. We have a world out there that is lost and bound for a future eternity without the Lord in eternal torment. And God is saying, hey, the only way to show them that I'm alive and that I'm real is to live a distinct life and to tell them why. It's what God's called us to, and it's powerful. One of the things that worries me about my own life and about the lives of many Christians and about the lives of maybe people in our church is that we won't be worth maligning when the time comes. The people in our lives are going to look at me and go, you, look, you don't look that different. You don't act that different. They're going to look at us as a church and go, eh, they're kind of like everybody else. I don't see what the big deal is. Let's let them keep doing their Christian thing because it's not bothering me. And I wonder if that's going to hurt our witness. It's going to hurt our ability to proclaim Christ when the time comes, when the opportunity arises. And I want to encourage you, be worth maligning. Be worth heaping abuse on because you live a distinct life. Pastor, I know Eric Reed puts it this way. He says, most of us have chosen heaven over hell, but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. There's a lot of Christians who have decided, yeah, I'm a, I want Jesus to pay the price for my sins for sure. Definitely don't want hell. I'm choosing heaven. But when we're facing the choice in this life, in our day-to-day walk with the Lord, in our day-to-day interaction with others, in our day-to-day choices between living a life of sin and living a life for the Lord, we choose this world over the heavenly life that God has called us to. Choosing suffering over sin does not feel great, right? There's a reason sin's attractive. There's a reason sin calls to us. is because it feels good in the moment. And there's a reason we run from suffering, right? Nobody likes pain. But, but, eternally minded Christians choose suffering over sin because of the reward ahead of us. And that brings us to number three, is this, is we must have an eternal perspective. We must have an eternal perspective. Look at verses five and six with me. He says this. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. And so Peter says to us, he says, hey, listen, don't worry when they heap abuse on you, when they malign you, when they ostracize you, when they kick you out. God's going to judge them. And he's going to judge everyone else who has lived, is living, or ever will live. God is the judge. It's vital for us to understand that there is a judgment coming for all of us. Reminds me of the guy in seminary. He was super annoying, which that may surprise you. There are super annoying people in seminary, more than you'd think. Anyways, super annoying. And in this one particular class, uh, he, would, he would raise his hand from day one. He started doing this. He would raise his hand when a professor would start a new topic or a new section or something and, and say, hey, is this, is this going to be on the exam? Patient professors, yeah, you can, you can plan on something a lot around this topic being on the exam. Okay, okay. He starts writing down. He wanted to make sure he paid attention. The next day, same deal. Hey, is, is this going to be on the, on the, on the exam? Professor, a little, a little bit more frustrated. Yeah, yeah, you can, this will probably be on the test, so you want to make sure you take good notes. Day three, he had had enough. The guy raises his hand. Is this going to be on the exam? And the professor's like, listen, anything I say from this lecture and you're accountable for on the exam for the rest of the year. Like, just made a big, just real clear, right? Anybody have annoying classmates? Just me, cool. Um, 
In the same way, many Christians, many people in the world live like we're not going to be accountable for the life that we live. And I'm telling you this morning, and more importantly, God's word is telling us and the whole world that we are going to be accountable at the end for the life that we live in our bodies, in the flesh. This is why it says uh, that the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In other words, the test is this life. The test is this life, and the evaluation is in the next. And we will be judged on how we lived, whether we trusted Christ or we did not. And it's important for us to know, Christians and non-Christians alike, that we will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for how we live this life. We're accountable for everything we say, think, or do in this life. This word says that this is why the gospel was preached to those who have since passed away, because the gospel is the only way anyone can, be escape, can escape being punished for the sins we commit in this life. That word gospel, you know, means, it means good news. And it's good news indeed because each and every one of us stands guilty before an eternal God. Guilty of sins both big and small, things we think are inconsequential and things we think are, are huge deal. We stand condemned before God. Things like lying or gossip or laziness, all of them, the Bible says, bring a punishment with them. And that punishment is death, an eternal death, an eternal separation from God because they've been committed against an eternal God. And that's really bad news. But the good news is this, is that God made a way for us to get back to him through his son, Jesus. Now, let's stop. Some of you guys are tuning me out right now. Some of you Bible Belt Christians who've grown up and you've heard this part of the sermon a thousand times, you know what I'm talking about? And you kind of glaze over and like, yeah, 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 gospel, got it, check. No, don't do that. Stay with me for a minute. This is the most glorious truth in the universe, that we can be made right with God through his son, Jesus, simply by believing. And if we'll turn from our sin and follow him, we can have eternal life with the Father. Can I get an amen? amen. That is great news, church. And we have got to stop being tired of hearing it because that's the whole story. When we say we're a church that's a gospel-centered church, that's what we mean. Everything revolves around this truth. And we can't get bored with it. Getting bored with it makes us go wandering, looking for other stuff to get us excited. And that's how we end up living on the fence, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And church, we have to wake up before the persecution comes and be ready to walk with the Lord and stand firm when the suffering comes our way. Amen. Sometimes in life, the, the difficulties and pain and just the day-to-day -day stuff, you can almost put like a film over, of dirtiness over stuff. You know when you haven't cleaned your deck in a while or something like that? It's like a, just a film over it. And many of us, the gospel has become that for us. It's still there. We still believe it. We're good with it. But it's kind of muted. It doesn't have the same impact on us as it once did. And we need this morning to kind of scrub it off a little bit and look at it afresh and be rejuvenated by it. It's vital. The gospel is everything because we're judged in the flesh. In the flesh. We're judged based on what we do in this life, and the gospel is the only way out. And I want to tell you, when you have this eternal perspective on our life and what we're here for and our relationships and our friendships, it's going to make you a person who's willing and able to stand strong. You gain peace with God and the knowledge that when you meet him, Jesus will stand with you and say, he's mine, she's mine, I've got them, I cover them. 
You gain eternity with the Lord, filled with peace, joy, happiness, absent of all pain, suffering, heartache, and tears. That's the reward for us if we put our faith in Jesus. So as we close, what do we do with a message whose main point is suffering is coming, so get ready. It's like, great. I appreciate Pastor Ronnie, you giving me that one. That was nice of you. What do we do with that? Well, I think there's three application points I want to leave you with. And the first one is let's start with the gospel. Just as I've said, if you haven't believed the gospel for yourself and begun a relationship with Jesus right now is the time. We are judged in the flesh for how we live and what we do with the gospel message. And you have heard it here this morning, and so you are responsible for the gospel message before the Lord. Okay? And you are not promised tomorrow. So do not leave this place without sorting that out, without putting your faith in Jesus, turning from your sin, and committing to walk with him for the rest of your life. I'll be right here at the end of this sermon. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you through that. But for those of us who are believers, as we've said, I wonder if we don't need to be reminded about how glorious it is and how beautiful it is that we can be saved even though we don't deserve it. The unrighteous made righteous through Christ. Let's look at it afresh today and be renewed and restored and rejuvenated by him. And second, once we've done that, once the gospel is in its rightful place at the center of our lives, let's resolve to be people worth maligning, Right? Let's resolve to be people worth having abuse heaped on us because we have chosen to suffer rather than to be swept away in sin. We've chosen to follow the Lord rather than follow our culture. We've chosen to follow Jesus instead of the passions of our flesh. Let's be people worth maligning. What are the areas of your life where it looks too much like the world? Is it how you relate to money? Is it the place of substances that you use to manufacture happiness in your life? So the worldly things you use at entertainment, I could go on and on, but I bet the Lord's speaking to you now and giving you areas in your life that look too much like the world. Let's resolve together as a church to look different than the world so that the world will know that Jesus is alive in us. He's given us each other to do that. He's given us friendships, relationships in the church. That's what community groups are for. That's what Bible studies are for, to help, help us find other people to walk through life with so that we might put those sins to death and live the way God's called us to. And lastly, let's resolve that when, not if, suffering comes from uh, for us, we will stand firm. Make that decision now before the moment comes so that you're prepared We won't give in. We'll remember that what Jesus did for us and what he calls us to do, and we will stand firm when the culture calls us to move, when Satan calls us to move, when our flesh pushes us in a way we know we ought not go. We will stand firm. Let's resolve together to do that today. As I said, I'll be down here during this last song with some of our pastors. I would love to pray with you about any of these things, about trusting Christ, about putting to death sins in your life, or about growing in your resolve to follow the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we were sinners, you died for us. Unrighteous people made righteous through your son. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who stand firm. Stand firm in the faith when suffering comes, when abuse is heaped upon us for the way we live. I pray that our lives will be distinct 
showing the power of God to a watching world. Would you be honored and glorified in that? Would you use us to draw other people to yourself in that? So you might have your way in our lives and the lives of others. Would you move in our hearts now to respond and to stand and to take the steps you're calling us to take? In Jesus' name.